From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Dick Lamb, in his own words today, the three-term Colorado governor died last week. We have mined our archives for interviews about issues that fueled him and his critics, from the Olympics to healthcare to abortion. In 1967, we sort of caught society off guard. I mean, you know, you could hardly uh, say the word abortion in polite company. There's such a mystique about the Olympics, and it's both an asset and a liability. Instead of rolling the dice or doing a Hail Mary operation on a desperately ill young boy that's going to die anyway, you really spend that money for prenatal care for pregnant women. Later, the new Pixar film Luca is about silencing your inner critic, which animator Earl Brawley must sometimes do. Animators in general, we're always doubting ourselves. Brawley's from Aurora. I'm Gail Clapper, and my husband Jack and I are Colorado Public Radio leadership partners. I'm increasingly feeling that the role that Colorado Public Radio is playing in our media environment is very important. And they've stepped up in a way that allows us to get information that we need in an objective way. The Leadership Partner Program is an important component of our philanthropic giving because it gives back to us. There's information at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When former Governor Dick Lamb died last week and the tributes rolled in, a friend of Lamb's summed him up this way, prophet and provocateur. Provocateur because Lamb was known by both friends and critics for being outspoken, on some occasions, some would say offensive, and prophet because the issues Lamb tackled throughout his 60-year career are still at the forefront, abortion, health care, and immigration. Today, we'll hear Lamb in his own words, interviews he gave CPR over the decades. I knew that when Governor Lamb was coming in, we'd get a thoughtful interview, but I'd have to steel myself for his irascibility. To guide us through this archive tape, political analyst Eric Sonderman joins us. He was still in college when he joined Lamb's 1974 gubernatorial campaign. It was the start of a long personal and professional relationship. And uh, Eric, welcome. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Obviously, I wish this uh, was a conversation we weren't having today, but it is what it is. And uh, thank you for including me. Of course. Give us just a few words that you'd describe Governor Lamb with. He was unique. He was genuine. He was forthright, sometimes almost to a fault or sometimes to his own detriment. Uh, He was always challenging, challenging others, but maybe more importantly, challenging himself. He was one of the few people I've known who was constantly challenging his own perceptions and even his own biases. Uh, He was an intellect. He was always thinking. Uh, and had a clear sense that if you weren't changing your mind on occasion, as new facts came into play, as conditions on the ground changed, you really weren't living if you weren't constantly engaging your brain. But there was much more to him than an intellect. I mean, he, uh, out of the limelight over the last couple decades, his kids said he was a fabulous grandfather. Mm. Uh, he was up here with us in the mountains around his 80th birthday, still 
snowshoeing uh, and cross-country skiing. Uh, he was a voracious in his day, a voracious mountain climber, voracious hiker. Uh, later on, uh, he and Dottie would bike around the world on various bike tours. Um, he lived life large and he lived life to the fullest. Dottie, his wife, and it, it does strike me as exceptional that he believed in changing his mind. That scene, I think, in politics these days is such a liability. He was a Democratic state lawmaker before he was governor with obviously higher aspirations. And you joke that his 74 gubernatorial campaign was born in the Sonderman family basement. How so? Um, not the basement, the living room. So we'll okay. correct that. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to overstate it. But it was April of 1973. My father, who was an academic uh, a professor at Colorado College, was running for the city council in Colorado Springs. Uh, obviously a conservative town, conservative community on a platform very similar to the LAM platform of more limited growth, uh, environmental sensitivity and protection, et cetera. Uh, on election night in April of 73, Dick and Dottie, who knew my folks somewhat, drove down from Denver to be part of the election night gathering in our living room. Uh, my father won that election handily uh, by a huge margin. And I, the, the way the story gets told is later that evening, Dick and Dottie got back in their car, headed north to Denver, and sort of looked at each other and said, if Fred Sonderman can pull this off in Colorado Springs, maybe we can do this thing statewide. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they did. Let's get into some of these hot-button issues which defined Lamb's political career. We'll start with his election to the Colorado legislature in 1966, where he sponsored one of the first laws in the nation to liberalize abortion. In 2017, he told Colorado Matters that a, a trip abroad with his wife, Dottie, got him thinking about abortion access. And uh, that trip came before he was elected to the state house. We had run into the, the fact that back in those days, it was 63, we were mountain climbing in, in, the, in South America. And that uh, 25% of hospital beds in South America, we were told, were, the, uh, were filled with women with botched abortions. And that mortality and the morbidity rate in South America was just uh, humongous. And so uh, that caught my interest. And so when I got in a position in 1967 to be a freshman legislator, it, it really was very much on my mind. Um, abortion was – except for when the life of the mother uh, was at stake and even that was in some question. So it was a fairly restrictive abortion, uh, abortion law, although all states had fairly restrictive abortion laws. The bill actually said that abortion was allowable when you had rape, incest, fetal deformity, me uh, mental health and physical health. So there was a, just a list of fairly restrictive uh, – so it still was a very restrictive abortion law, but it was the first step in a, in a long journey. Important to understand the chronology here. This comes years before the Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade decision in favor of a woman's right to an abortion. And you might be surprised here that Lamb's legislation back then passed with Republican support. It had to. Republicans controlled the legislature at the time and the governor's office. 
Well, in 1967, we sort of um, caught society off guard. I mean, no, this, you know, you could hardly uh, say the word abortion in polite company um, for a long time. I guess by 67, that had changed. But um, it was uh, it was not that volatile an issue because passing a liberalized abortion law was sort of beyond the, 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 the realm of thought. And um, so, uh, but what was amazing is when I started taking this bill around to a variety of people, the uh, legislators, sort of in- incredible how many people signed up. A reminder that opposition to abortion wasn't always a Republican issue and that evangelicals weren't always so powerful within the GOP. Uh, I encourage folks to listen to a great episode of the NPR podcast, Throughline, about this. And when Dick Lamb was a state lawmaker, Colorado was awarded the 1976 Winter Games. But there was a lot of opposition, partly on environmental grounds and because of costs. Lamb led a campaign in which voters ultimately rejected public funding for the Games. And we should say that Lamb didn't hate the Olympics. He told us that he remembered attending them in 1960 when he was a graduate student at Stanford. Uh, The Winter Games were in Squaw Valley, California that year. It's just that he hated what the Olympics asked at the time of host cities. And he told us the whole issue shaped his career in many ways. Um, It's helped define my life. I mean, I I stumbled into this. I was a um, certified public accountant in the legislature. I was the only certified public accountant. I was put on the audit committee, and in that capacity, I started looking at the costs and benefits of the uh, 76 Olympics. And then and sort of one thing led to another. And I frankly thought it was going to be the end of my political career because an awful lot of people thought it was, um, you know, I was being unpatriotic and being a pain in the butt. But it just sort of flowed from there. All of a sudden, a bunch of people in Evergreen got excited and against the sites that were up there. And really, one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, the vote had taken, and ironically, the same people who defeated the Olympics elected me governor two years later. I really thought I was committing political suicide, but um, it didn't turn out that way. Eric Sonderman, columnist, that campaign against the Olympics put Lamb on the national, really the international map. Uh, he began his run for governor. You signed on. You were in college at the time. Set the political scene for us. I mean, 1974 was like a really pivotal year in Colorado. Yeah, Ryan, we're all creatures of the times in which we sort of come to fruition. And in Dick Lamb's case, the early 1970s were a time of some change in Colorado. I was very young. I can't say I was as sensitized to it as I maybe have been to later changes. But this was a state that had very much sort of a chamber of commerce mentality, chamber of commerce, governors and mayors and all the rest. And growth was regarded as an unvarnished, unquestioned asset. Hmm. And Dick Lamb came along and challenged that thinking. But more than that, Dick Lamb captured a public mood that was already forming around some of these issues and questions that were already being asked. Uh, and that's what led to the defeat, and it was a, a significant, large-scale defeat of the Olympic Games uh, by passing uh, Lamb's proposal to say no to those games in the 1972 election, and then set the stage for his uh, race for governor two years later. 
the key part of that campaign for governor was that he walked the state. Literally, he started at the Wyoming border. He ended at the New Mexico line. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a straight through walk. He would tie uh, some kind of rope or string or whatever around a fence post or a light post or whatever when he was done for that day or that series of three or four days. And then uh, a week later would go back there and pick it up and walk another 30 miles or whatever, staying in people's homes, uh, talking to voters along the way. And then obviously 1974 was the Watergate year. It was the reaction to Nixon's recent resignation. And it was just a banner Democratic year that carried Dick Lamb to the governorship, carried Gary Hart to the U.S. Senate, Tim Worth to Congress, and a whole new generation, a much younger generation in Colorado. While he's governor, again, three turns, uh, Lamb becomes known for talking about health care as a limited resource, the idea of medical rationing. He earned nicknames like Governor Gloom, talked about a duty to die. Uh, after he left office, he wrote a book about health care reform called Condition Critical. Uh, here's an excerpt of my conversation with him in 2007. Keep in mind, this is uh, a number of years before the passage of Obamacare, which expanded coverage. Give me some examples of how you would ration health care. Well, I think we start off with the fact that we already ration health care in the United States. I argue in this book that the United States denies more health care to more people than any other developed country. We do it by leaving 44 million people out of the system. Talking about the uninsured. The uninsured, yes. Which And there's a heavy price to be paid for that. The Institute of Medicine says 18,000 Americans die every year because they don't have basic health insurance. So it's we already... I believe, have a really negative record when it comes to rationing health care. We ration more than other nations. And I'm arguing that um, other nations ration it um, by waiting in line. One of the criticisms of the Canadian system is that they, if you want to get a hip replacement or an MRI, you've got to wait in line. But I am arguing that the best way to ration is to just simply, first of all, admit that every modern nation rations. We've invented more health care than we can afford to deliver to everyone. And I'm arguing that we really recognize a series of priorities, that we decide, for instance, that prenatal care is more important than a, than a transplant uh, to somebody. So if we have to prioritize, I'm arguing that we prioritize that way. Well, let's talk about the example you just gave, the idea of putting prenatal care above a transplant. What's the philosophy there? How does that look? Well, I think that in whoever spends communally raised money, that means insurance or taxes, has a duty to actually get the most health out of those dollars. And so in Oregon, when they faced this question, whether they should um, fund a transplant, in this case for a desperately and probably fatally ill little boy, that's where they started this process. They said, this doesn't make sense when we have lots of women here in Oregon without even prenatal care. So they started this whole question about we've got to, we, we have only limited funds and we should ask how do we buy the most health for those funds? The example would be for instead of rolling the dice or doing a Hail Mary operation on a desperately ill young boy that's going to die anyway, you really spend that money for prenatal care for pregnant women. So where that equation becomes very difficult is at the bedside. A doctor then goes to the mother of that child in need of the transplant and says what? 
Yes. One of the things that we have to do is to understand that people don't have an, uh, an unlimited right to tap communal funds. What they do in England is they say there's nothing we can do even though it often is a lie. So your question is a good one. And I don't know that there's any, you know, the answer except other than the fact that the priority system doesn't allow us to do a long shot transplant. Eric Sonderman, there was backlash to this notion of duty to die. How did Governor Lamb deal with it? That was quite an interview to listen to, Ryan. Uh, Well done on the governor's part and also well done on your part, probing questions. Uh, Dick Lamb, in his own way, was talking about a complex, complicated issue, not one out of the realm of polite discussion, but he talked about it in a very frank way. The three words, duty to die, became the headlines, international headlines. You could read them in Australia. You could read them in Africa. You could probably read them in China, as well as all over this hemisphere. Uh, He didn't back away from them. He tried to clarify and give it fuller context, but he very much believed in this whole notion of generational equity, way beyond healthcare. It applies to pensions. It applies to everything else, where so many, a disproportionate share in his mind of society's resources are going to the elderly, those who have already lived a very full life. And we're shortchanging younger generations. And I think that is a theme that has stayed with us and is as relevant and present and critical today as it was when Dick Lamb uttered the duty to die words. Now, what is it, 30, 35 years ago? Um, And that he continued to utter um, with that book that came again after his service as governor, another issue that he pursued vigorously over the years was immigration. And the way he initially framed it was, once again, in terms of resources, he wrote a book about this called The Immigration Time Bomb. Here he is at Georgetown University. This is, I think, 86. Our borders are a sieve. The question of immigration reform is not closing the borders, or, but simply saying who shall come here and under what rational orderly basis do we choose them? The circumstances of public policy have changed a great deal from that hundred years ago when the uh, Statue of Liberty was constructed. First of all, it never stood for unlimited immigration in the first place, but uh, more important that essentially at that time, the United States was uh, essentially an empty continent anyway, with a vast amount of of open space and resources for settlement. Whereas the, uh, it had some 58 million people when the Statue of Liberty went up, a density of 17.8 people per square mile. Um, in 1985, we have 240 million people, a density of 64 people per square mile, an unemployment rate that is structural, that leaves many people out of the economy already, that we're not doing a very good job on our own poor, let alone persisting in the illusion that we can continue to absorb the poor and the homeless from the rest of the world. No real acknowledgement there of indigenous people. Later on, his rhetoric got sharper. In a speech called, I have a plan to destroy America, he said the first step to destruction would be creating a multilingual, multicultural country. Uh, In his words, a Hispanic Quebec. Uh, CPR News spoke last week with former Denver mayor Wellington Webb, who was at the time a member of Lamb's cabinet. Personally, Dick Lamb was a friend and a mentor. Um, he was not perfect, 
I thought he made some tragic errors in judgment as it related to dealing with immigration in the Latino community, and secondly, as it related to uh, dealing with seniors. Tragic errors in judgment. Webb, uh, like Lamb, a Democrat. Uh, Eric Sonderman, as Lamb wrapped up his three terms as governor, uh, he told CPR in 1987 that he was tired of politics. Uh, He said he wouldn't run for higher office. But in 92, he's... Uh, defeated in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. And in 96, he runs briefly on the Reform Party ticket for president, but uh, Ross Perot gets the nomination. What made him change his mind about returning to politics? I think it was his consummate interest in public policy, not in the political game. I think Dick had been much, much more focused on the game itself, on how to win, on the tactics and strategies of politics early in his career. By the time the 90s rolled around, uh, he was still focused on all these policy questions. The stance he took on immigration, which is one, candidly, he and I would discuss and sometimes argue about, not in black and white terms, but at the margins. I was always much more focused on sort of the duty that immigrants owe to this country when they arrive here than on the raw numbers of immigrants. But his stand was his stand. It cost him. It cost him probably that primary, the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate in 92, which ultimately was a seat in the U.S. Senate. Uh, When Dick Lamb left the governorship in those latter years, his poll numbers, Ryan, were essentially flat, which is hard to imagine in this day and age. But by flat, I mean that he enjoyed almost the same level and a high level of support among Democrats as he did among Republicans, as he did among independent, unaffiliated voters. Hmm. It's hard to imagine that in this day and age with any politician. But as part of that flatness, there had been a slackening of his support um, uh, in the Democratic Party, among Latinos, among some other constituency groups. And it certainly cost him that pro- that primary election in 1972. He still remained, and and quite frankly, until his until his death, he was interested in and involved in and outspoken about issues of public policy. That is what drove him. Well, Eric, I'm I'm sorry once again for your loss. I know it's been a difficult weekend. You've been uh, with the family and. Uh, We expect that there will be a memorial service in the weeks to come. Thank you so much for your time and your recollections. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Political commentator, columnist for Colorado politics, Eric Sonderman. He served on Governor Richard Lamb's staff. Lamb died last Thursday at the age of 85. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a film that encourages you to silence your inner critic. Something I could use for sure. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give 
and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Highway engineers say it's unlike anything they've seen before. The extreme damage, using their words, to I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. Mudslides have pummeled the artery this summer, but this weekend was just brutal. The highway is closed in both directions. This is a story we'll be covering for a while, and we're curious what you want to know and who you'd like to hear from. Email your ideas and questions, Matters at cpr.org. That's Matters at cpr.org. The mudslides along I-70 and Loveland Pass over the weekend demonstrate that wildfires aren't only an immediate threat to homes and people. Long after the smoke subsides, scorched forests can wreak havoc, not only on roads, but on drinking water as well. When it rains, burned hillsides can erode into streams and reservoirs. CPR's Sam Brash reports on one community trying to get ahead of the threat. At the moment, Frank Alphone says Steamboat Springs might have the best water in Colorado. So essentially, it's this direction, seven miles to the Continental Divide. And that's where all of the water originates for this plant. Alphone manages the Mount Warner Water and Sanitation District. I met him at the main intake along Fish Creek, which supplies almost 95% of the ski town's water. Alphone says it starts a snowpack high up in the Rockies before cascading down waterfalls, like the one you're hearing now. At the moment, it's a postcard mountain stream, but Alphone doesn't expect it'll stay that way. It's not if, it's, it's, it's kind of when, so we're trying to do what we can to prepare for it. The reason, he says, is wildfire. The state's two largest fires are now burning just miles from the watershed. If there's a fire and then we had a major rain event after that, then we'd get a bunch of ash, a bunch of debris, a bunch of sediment in the actual creek. Similar circumstances have overwhelmed other water districts. Denver spent millions digging ash and sediment out of reservoirs after one fire. More recently, other communities have paid to have helicopters drop mulch on burn scars to slow erosion. But Alphonse says his district has a plan, developed a couple of years ago. To kind of look at what areas are most prone and are likely to potentially have a wildfire, and what can we do to be prepared for that? Fernando Rosario-Ortiz studies how fires impact water at the University of Colorado Boulder. He says this sort of planning is essential, especially since more than two-thirds of U.S. drinking water comes from forests. It's it's obvious that climate change is impacting the, the frequency and intensity of fires, which directly relates to the need for us to be better prepared. The steamboat plan details how it'll keep taps running after a fire comes for Fish Creek. One part is to work with residents to try to prevent a fire for as long as possible. In the sanctuary neighborhood along Fish Creek, a crew feeds dry brush and branches into a wood chipper. Ann Longer leads the Homeowners Association for the high-end development. We felt under a bit of pressure to get it done. That's because the water plant found a small fire here could easily rocket up a canyon and burn the whole watershed. Laringer says that helped her convince some of her neighbors to help pay for this project. If you say this is for our community, your neighbors, so that's what how we have approached those people. But while clearing out forests might help prevent a wildfire, Alphone isn't counting on it. That's why his district has already made one major investment outlined in the wildfire plan, a second water treatment plant. It's an emergency backup fed by wells unconnected to Fish Creek. That means if a fire did take out the main water resource, 
we would have to limit outdoor watering, limit car washing, limit you know cleaning of sidewalks. But we're pretty confident that we could provide water from a different source if this entire source had to be shut down. Alphonse says the next step is to improve this original plant so it can handle some wildfire debris and toxins. The only holdup is money. As you know, these projects aren't inexpensive. So we're looking at rate increases. We're looking at uh, potential loans. We're looking at grant opportunities, too. Including federal disaster grants. And on that front, Alphone is newly optimistic. President Biden recently doubled the size of a program to help pay for projects, like improving the Fish Creek treatment plant. Alphone says his district just might qualify, especially since it already figured out what it needs to do. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Pixar's new film, Luca, takes you to an idyllic Italian village where just off the coast lives a young sea monster. Luca escapes his parents' underwater clenches and comes to the surface, morphing instantly into a boy. He meets another shapeshifter, Alberto. Everything good is above the surface. Walking. Air! (gasps) The sky, clouds, the sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. (laughs) Have you ever gone to the human town? Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of an expert. While set in Italy, Luca has Colorado roots. Director Enrico Casarosa and animator Earl Brawley both spent time in Aurora earlier in their lives. And Brawley joined me. Welcome to the program. Hey, excited to be here. This is a movie about childhood and coming of age. I wonder if you have a favorite memory growing up in Aurora? Yeah, (laughs) me and my best friend were kind of nerdy types, and we would always kind of have these silly adventures where one time we snuck out at night and went around and did chalk drawings on people's driveways. We're like, oh yeah, we're being rebellious, drawing chalk drawings. (laughs) Do you remember what the drawings were of? I have no idea, no. Yeah, something, <laughs> something positive, I'm sure. Not not like negative things. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to hear. Maybe a, an early glimpse into your coming animation career. Yeah, yeah. What sorts of seeds were planted for animation when you were in Colorado, I wonder? Yeah, I mean, the very first thing I remember is in high school at Smoky Hill. They had this computer class, which I took. And I always like loved computer playing on the computer at home. I think we did something like CAD or something where you could like build your own house. Uh-huh. Like the assignment was to build a dream house. But just like being in this virtual world was kind of mind blowing to me. And I think that's kind of the first seed for getting into animation. CAD computer assisted design. Do you remember the house you designed? Um, I vaguely remember it. Um Back then, this, like the amount of details, you couldn't really do much detail. <laughs> but you could kind of like structure, oh, I want to have like two floors and I don't know, imagine like putting a water slide or something in it, but that was probably too complex at the time. <laughs> and what came after that? So like, because I graduated and I still hadn't really put it together. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then my mom, my mom has always been very <laughs> supportive and my father, but she kind of was like, oh, well, why don't you try graphic design? There's this school here. <laughs> and so she kind of nudged me into that. I went to um, it was Platt College in Aurora. 
And you could choose, like, you did graphic design, and then at the end, you could choose web design or animation. So I was like, oh, cool, I'll try animation. Uh, it still wasn't like characters. You weren't like animating characters, but you had to do some kind of film. So I did a foosball table because there's, you know, it's not complex. The, the players are just stiff plastic, right? <laughs> but, you know, I could have the animate the camera going in and I had music edited to it. And so that was like, wow, yeah, I'm actually creating something. Oh, that's so clever. I know that your career took you to Japan, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> of all places. An epicenter of animation. I'm guessing that there were influences from Japan that carry over into Luca, references to the movies of Studio Ghibli, one of the most famous Japanese animation studios, and director Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, and we specifically looked at Kiki, Kiki's Delivery Service. The thing that we were trying to bring in for animation was more of that kind of, how little can you do? Like, just stop in a pose and maybe just the hair is bouncing, and that's what's keeping it alive. Usually, like in CG animation, you can never have the characters completely frozen, otherwise it, it looks dead, right? Huh. But we wanted to push that idea of maybe we can just hit that pose and then just have the slightest bit of keep alive on the hair. Some of the animators played with uh, multiple limbs, so the character's moving so fast that you actually have a duplicate of the character in there huh. showing, like, you know, three or four legs, huh. which, you know, that's very common more in, um, like, anime and things. You mentioned Kiki's delivery service in 1989, Miyazaki uh, animated film. You used a, a noun there, a kind of hyphenated noun, a keep alive. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's kind of a term we use in animation. Basically, it's not really an acting thing. It's just more of, like, physics and like if you're doing 2D animation and you hold a drawing, you know, it's it's very forgivable. <laughs> but since the CG model is so realistic, if it's not moving at all, it just feels like a doll. And so keep alive is when you just have a slight movement. And if you think of it in terms of pixels, like just a few pixels are kind of changing and moving so that it's it doesn't feel stiff. So you'll you'll get that note often, like, oh, you need some keep alive here. You mentioned hair, and I heard from an animator friend that hair is often really hard to animate well. Is that true? Well, usually it's done by a different department. We have a um, like simulation department. They'll do hair and cloth. One of the things here, though, is the animators have the ability to kind of run a rough pass on the simulation. So you can kind of animate and then run that uh, simulation pass to get an idea of how much the hair would react to your animation. But then the sim department will kind of dial that in and they can control, you know, how much it's bouncing or flowing or how heavy it feels. But if there's like a ponytail or something where it's like more like a solid thing, then probably the animator would have to animate that. And it is very tough. Like it's not, it's not fun to animate. I think this is just a little bit of insight into what a huge team effort and over how many years, really, it takes to create a feature-length film. When did you know you wanted to work with or for Pixar? Yeah, it's kind of been the goal from the beginning. After Platt College, I went to um, Vancouver Film School. And at that time, I think Incredibles had just come out. Well, not that this isn't fun. 
and but I'm gonna go look around. What do you think is going on here? You think we're on vacation or something? Mom and Dad's lives could be in jeopardy, or worse, their marriage. Their marriage? So the bad guys are trying to wreck Mom and Dad's marriage. Oh, forget it. Watching that and just like, ah, man, the story is so good and the animation is so beautiful. And it's like, I have to work here. And so I remember applying <laughs> after school and thinking, I probably have no chance, but I have to try. And then I ended up, like you said, I ended up going to Japan. And that was a whole new adventure. And I kind of got comfortable there. But it was still in the back of my mind that I wanted to get to Pixar. And then from there, I ended up going to Sony Imageworks in Vancouver. And that was kind of the next step. So getting into feature film. And then, you know, I got comfortable there and I was happy and I was able to be in like a lead role. But it was still in the back of my mind, like, ah, but Pixar, I have to be a Pixar. I had almost given up, actually, when I got the offer. And I had actually bought a condo literally one week before I got the offer from <laughs> Pixar. <laughs> so, but it was like, you know, I talked to my wife and like, what are we going to do? And she's, He's just like, well, we have to go <laughs> because that, that's been my goal from the beginning. So, Like other Pixar movies, there are visual treats for fans. In the town square, we can see posters for La Strada and Roman Holiday. And there are visual gags galore. On land, a cat shoves a dish off the counter in the background. Luca falls from his bike. And, you know, he's a sea monster, so... Instead of seeing stars, he sees fish. How do animators decide on when and where to throw in little nuggets like that? Yeah, I think it's kind of nice because it's very open to ideas. So if someone has an idea for something, um, we call it pitching. So they'll pitch the idea. Oh, I thought this would be funny. Huh. Just someone has the idea and then everyone else likes it. So it gets put in there. Okay, what's your best idea that got put into Luca? Kind of one of the best, like, kind of acting ideas I had was Luca and Alberto are in the hideout, and he's like regretting being there. He wants to go home, and um, he wants to go underwater back home. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "Well, thank you," but and then like I just had this picture in my head of him doing like a bow, almost like a Japanese bow. Like, you know, Japanese are very like, "Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't do that." <laughs> so I had that in my mind. So I kind of did that in my blocking. And that came across really well. Everybody really liked it. So that was kind of like, yeah. <laughs> kind of nice. Nice uh, moment for me. As Luca tries to politely extricate himself from yeah. his new friend on land. And, you know, the, the film does take place underwater and on land. I wonder, besides obvious cues like fish and coral reefs, what sort of challenge is it for animators to capture the presence of water all around? Yeah, I mean, the physics are so different, right? One of the problems you have when anyone's animating is sometimes your animation looks floaty. Like it looks kind of everything's too smooth or too slow moving. Mm. But then if you're animating underwater, it kind of has to look floaty, right? <laughs> so there's a fine line between it looking like bad floaty animation, but and looking like it's actually, you know, the character's swimming. Yeah, I had one shot really long shot of Luca's mother 
and they're just talking. It's just a scene where they're just talking back and forth, but they're underwater. <laughs> so the whole time, it's a, again with a keep alive, but it's like underwater keep alive. So as they're talking, I have to think like, well, are they floating up now? Are they floating down? Are they, you know, as they start to move, I need to propel them with the tail. So it's just a, a whole nother layer of things to kind of keep track of. Yeah. Locomotion underwater. You mentioned Luca's mother, uh, his whole family, his mother, father, grandmother, his creepy uncle Ugo. Uh, they all play a significant role in the film. Do you have to think about resemblance when you draw relatives? Uh, yeah, there was, it wasn't my shot, but there's this thing like where the mom says this line to Luca like a few times. And then like in the end of the movie, Luca says it back to her. Their actions kind of mimicked each other. So that was kind of one like intentional thing. Like in the animators who were animating those scenes would uh, all got together and kind of talked about, Oh, what are we going to do to make it, you know, look like the same kind of action mother to son and then son to mother. So do you work on particular character scenes? Like how is your job divvied up? Yeah, so sometimes an animator will be cast on like a certain character, maybe because that's their strong point or something. But mm-hmm. usually um, you'll just be assigned like a chunk of shots. And it might be like six to, you know, eight or nine shots in a row. And you basically animate everything that's in those shots at uh, at pixar there's a crowd team so if there's like crowd characters in the background you won't animate those the crowd team will take those the crowd there's a crowd team (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's actually a really nice system because i've worked uh, like at sony they didn't have that system and you would just have to animate everything (laughs) and sometimes it's like 20 characters throughout the film luca silences his doubt and negative thoughts by giving them a name, Bruno. And he exclaims, Silencio Bruno, as a way of kind of psyching himself up to do stuff. I wonder, animator Earl Brawley, if you you have a Bruno voice inside, and what does that voice inside you make you doubt about yourself? Hmm, that's a good question. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think animators in general, like, we're always doubting ourselves, <laughs> especially like you'll come up against something very challenging and you'll start struggling with it. And then you'll start to doubt like that you can do this job. Like I, I can't do this anymore. I'm not good enough. <laughs> but you just have to kind of rely on, you know, the leads or the people who are there to help you and kind of get you through that. Sometimes you just need to ask for help. Yeah. And just, you know, people are there to help you. So, just rely on those people when you need them, right? Film and television were very much affected by the pandemic, of course. I wonder how it changed your work animating Luca. Yeah, I mean, strangely, like, our work is just mostly we're sitting at the computer. (laughs) (laughs) So actually working from home, it doesn't change all that much, like the actual working part. The thing that changes is you don't have that interaction walking down the hall, running into somebody who you wouldn't normally. So it's more lonely, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you start to feel a little bit disconnected, like you'll go days without talking to people sometimes. And yet it, it has to be so collaborative, you know, because what you've described yeah. is so collaborative. Yeah, I mean, there's 
you know, ways around it. I mean, the Zoom works. They would set up these rooms, like like bullpen rooms, where you could, if you needed to talk to somebody in person, you could both join the Zoom room. And, you know, they have um, like an Anim help team, and they're always there to help you if you have problems. But, yeah, like, especially because I was learning the software as I was working on this movie, because it's totally different software. And, like, at the studio, you know, people would just pop into your office and be like, oh, just do this and this and this. But if you have a problem at home, it's like you have to set up a Zoom call and it's not the same, right? Yeah, I really resonate with that. Our teams were also so decentralized for a time. Yeah. Before, Luca, you've worked on some pretty big animated hits like The Mitchells versus The Machines and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. As an animator, how do you switch between different styles and stories? Yeah, it can be tricky. I think the biggest thing is to, especially if you're joining in the middle of the project and things are already established, Mm -hmm. it's really important to look at, you know, the shots that have been approved and kind of look at those and study those. And also like, you know, we have meetings every day where animators are showing their shots to the director. And then even if you're not showing your shot, like just going to the meeting and seeing what notes other people are getting. And then you kind of tune into what the director and the supervisor are looking for. And then if you apply those to your shot, then you kind of quickly get into the style. It's really about reading the environment. How, how much Earl Brawley do you draw by hand these days? Um, I don't draw very much, yeah. <laughs> sadly. Because <laughs> I, I loved drawing as a kid. I was never good enough like to do like 2D animation. But I feel like drawing still helps, even if you're a 3D animator. Hmm. So I, I try to draw now and then. And I actually did a drawing a day for a year challenge. This was about a year ago. <laughs> and I kind of forced myself to do one drawing each day. But I wasn't like drawing original stuff. I was just kind of like look at something and copy it. But it felt good, like just, you know, getting my hand to move every day. Any advice for young animators who might be listening? Um, I think just when you're looking for a job, cast a wide net, um, especially in the beginning, you know, getting that first job is pretty tough. So the more open you are to, you know, relocating or working in, you know, whatever medium, the easier it's going to be. And wherever you go, you're going to be able to learn something there. So just get what you can out of wherever you're working. And so buy a condo you know, because then Pixar will call. Oh, buy a condo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's the other thing is like, don't wait on things. Like you, you have to live your life and things will just play out as they do, I guess. <laughs> Earl, it's been nice to talk to you. Congratulations on Luca. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been, it's been fun. Aurora native Earl Brawley is an animator on Pixar's latest film, Luca. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Before we go, have you heard about our road trip that's coming up? Avery Lil and I and the whole Colorado Matters team will be on the road again to see how you are weathering the pandemic, how you've weathered the last year and a half. Our journey starts at the end of the month with stops in Rocky Ford, Colorado Springs, and Fort Morgan. Then 
onto Grand Junction, the Four Corners in the San Luis Valley. And we want your story ideas, especially if you know one or more of these places well. Head over to CPR.org slash roadtrip to see our map and to pass along those story ideas. Again, CPR.org slash roadtrip. Tell us about issues or specific people or spots to highlight. That's as Colorado Matters goes on the road again with our staff. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks today to Monica Castillo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.